The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Orban, a pioneer of the cloud computing and DevOps space. Stephen's brought exponential technology to many traditional organizations. He's led teams at Bloomberg, becoming the CIO of their sports business, and later moved on to become the CIO of the Dow Jones. Today, he's at AWS, initially starting as their head of enterprise strategy, but now leading a new initiative in the data analytics space. Technology was in Stephen's DNA from a very early age. And ever since I was even in grade school, very interested in and math and science came naturally to me. Whereas things around history and social sciences and art were things that maybe I was a little less interested in, would be a kind way to put it. Yeah. It turns out that a lot of the valuable lessons that I've learned later in my career have been learned by people before us historically. And now I'm kind of kicking myself for not paying a little <laughs> bit more attention to that stuff. And as irony would have it, I ended up marrying a high school history teacher. Oh, so, there you go. You rounded that out. That's yeah, good. Yeah. We do have a very interesting knowledge pairing that way. But anyhow, always very interested in math and science. I played Nintendo games like it was a full-time job growing up. And... My grandparents bought me a computer when I was 14 years old. It was my first computer. It was an IBM PS2. Actually, before that, I found a TI-99 in my uncle's attic when I was about eight years old. And it came with a book that had uh, the, the, the programming language that, and the, that the TI-99 compiler supported. It was very much like uh, what we know as, as basic programming today. And... Uh, Started writing a bunch of interesting programs on that, making things move around the screen, and I just knew that I wanted to be involved in computers. Then when I was 14, my grandparents bought me my first computer, and the first thing I did was take it apart. Proper uh, engineer. Proper, yes. And I remember- I, I'm going to rebuild this better. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I took it apart. I wanted to know how it worked. And I remember it like it was yesterday. My grandfather walked into my bedroom like with pieces of the computer on the floor. <laughs> I wasn't yet sure how I was going to put it back together. What the hell are you doing? Roll forward to 2011, and Stephen was heading up infrastructure at Bloomberg. He realized if he wanted to maximize the behaviors to help his teams be successful, but they were being killed by the traditional of tin technology. And thus, he became infatuated with cloud computing. As an organization, we were spending way too much money and time trying to stand up infrastructure to support all these brand new businesses that frankly, we didn't know we're going to make it to tomorrow. And these were experiments. And it was great that we were running all these experiments and trying to create new businesses, but having to wait eight to 12 weeks to get a machine to run your software on when we could have the idea from a software perspective coded in a day was insufficient. And we were building way too much into disaster recovery and business continuity for things that, you know, not even sure if it's going to be here tomorrow. And that's when I became infatuated with, hey, 
I wonder what the public cloud could do for us and being able to scale this up instantly on demand, not having to wait and having it immediately available and only what we needed. So anyway, didn't get an opportunity to use public cloud there, ended up building Bloomberg's private cloud for a year or so. And then in 2012, I had the opportunity to go become the CIO of Dow Jones, a major financial and media services company. They own the Wall Street Journal, MarketWatch, Barron's, and a number of B2B products, Factiva, Dow Jones Newswires, delivering financial data and content to customers worldwide, and started to see the same movie. (laughs) A lot of money and time spent on trying to build best-in-class infrastructure, not being able to move fast enough, you know, digital, and I'm using air quotes, quote-unquote, digital became a thing in media and financial services in that particular area, and everybody's trying to figure out what that meant, and the competitive landscape was shifting so quickly, it just was not sustainable to try to take all that on while also trying to build great product experiences for your customers as fast as your competitors were. Right, and learn as quickly as possible. And learn as quickly and experiment and, you know, trying to do that when the lion's share of your IT investment is going towards building these enormous data centers, it doesn't add up. So largely because of the experience I had knocking my head against the wall trying to do this at Bloomberg, we made a very big push when I was there to move towards public cloud and DevOps and create a much more agile, developer, engineering-friendly organization who could take advantage of both open source, public cloud, and you know what we now know is agile and DevOps methodologies to transform the business effectively which we're going to talk quite a lot about, I think, in some of your upcoming questions. So doing that for a couple of years, learned what works. More importantly, apropos to this conversation, learning what didn't and making (laughs) loads of mistakes along the way. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to then come to AWS in 2014 as our head of enterprise strategy. And I spent my first three and a half years here working with the largest three or 4,000 companies in the world, helping them think through what the cloud, DevOps, and what that transformation and shift meant for them and how they could lead their organizations, not just from a technical perspective, but also from a people, process, organizational, cultural perspective, how they can make that shift too. And I've had an amazing run traveling around the world, talking to lots of mostly CTOs, CIOs, but also boardrooms and chief execs, helping them understand what that means to their company. And then about a year and a half ago-ish, uh, early in 2018, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to start building a new business for us, which I'll be able to share more about with all of you in the next couple of months or so. Super exciting to learn about that. Cool. So before we learn about that, why don't we hear a little bit about some of the things you've had to unlearn along the way? Yeah. Because there's lots of sort of interesting, like, you know, we could talk for hours about some of the things you've had to learn along the way, right? Company stuff technology stuff but you know i think one of the things that's super interesting for me is the leadership parts in this right helping these people who might even be technical understand the impact of these sort of like massive technology changes um but they come with people changes as well and and even as you going from engineer to manager to you know leading and coaching a lot of these executives you know, what have been some of the unlearning moments for you yeah and it's a great way to frame the question actually because The first thing that comes to mind, both when I read your book, which I'm a big fan of, by the way. Thank you. And as I reflect across 
my career and some of the really big, meaty, hairy things that I did wrong for a long time and had to unlearn and relearn to, to actually have a breakthrough and make massive change actually comes from some of the work I was doing at Dow Jones and trying to lead the change at that organization. And just to set a little context for the story I'm about to tell, Dow Jones, 125-year-old, more than that now, year-old organization with an incredible legacy and has done some very amazing, innovative things over the course of that 125 years. They deliver nearly 3 million subscriptions of the Wall Street Journal each and every single morning. And I remain very fascinated by the internet and cloud computing, but I will tell you the printing press and the logistics that goes around and printing nearly 3 million papers, stacking them, getting them and loaded in the trucks the right way so when they come off, all the addresses are properly ordered and they get to the right houses. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. But like many companies in the late 90s and the early 2000s with the internet boom really taking a toll on the print advertising business and then the financial crash in 2008 starting to compress a little bit their enterprise businesses as well. They did what a lot of companies did and outsourced a lot of their IT and their IT operations to various third parties. Such a classic pattern, isn't it? Classic, yeah. And, you know, they did that. And I've since talked to, it's got to be more than 100 companies without exaggerating, who have been in various shades of that similar situation. But it was a very common pattern. Lots of companies did it. Well, if we can do IT, which is just a cost center for less by outsourcing it over here, we should just go do that. That makes perfect sense. And look, I don't take a position one way or another about outsourcing any part of one's business. If you believe that it's not a core competency and you believe that it can be done for less somewhere else, great. There's a time and a place for it. But the devil's in the details. And if creating digital experiences, which I would argue is very much a technology-led thing, is going to be a core competency and a competitive differentiator, that's probably something you ought to not let go of as an organization. So anyway, when I got to Dow Jones, that was kind of the backdrop, and about two-thirds of the department was outsourced, and the story is actually even a little bit deeper than that. To a couple of different providers, we had a project, just to paint this and ground this into what was going on, we had a project called the, the Mainframe Migration Project. It wasn't called the Phoenix Project? It was not called the Phoenix Project. <laughs> Maybe we would have had some more success. We had that time. <laughs> we would have renamed it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could. We could. But anyway, if the name Mainframe Migration Project alone doesn't scare you enough already, <laughs> if that's already not scary enough, the engineering of that migration had been outsourced to one third party. The QA and the testing had been outsourced to another third party. And the project management had been outsourced to yet another third party. And then, of course, we had a number of still full-time employees who were doing various bits of work as well. So you had four entities all somewhat incented to point the finger at each other. Yeah. And it was a very difficult environment to try to get things done. And so anyway, my assessment was, I'm kind of cutting to the chase here. There was a lot of things that went into this assessment and a lot of conversations and, you know, analysis and study and all that. And then of course, my previous experiences, not wanting to reinvent the infrastructure wheel, but you know, we said, look, we're going to move as much of our infrastructure and our certainly our net new product development to the cloud because we don't want to be hampered by having to build our own infrastructure. We're going to hire a lot more engineers 
and we're going to take accountability of the things that are core to our business. Anything that's like a front-end, subscriber-based customer experience, we want to own that. And that can't be a contractual vehicle where we're arguing over which I was dotted and which T was crossed for 10 weeks before we get anything done. And we're going to participate in the open source community and we're going to move away from what was then a plan, build, run, very classic waterfall methodology, which again, I don't take any offense to. I think there's a time and a place for it. But for all of our customer-facing experiences... You want to iterate fast. We want to iterate fast. And I used the phrase DevOps at the time to explain what we were doing. We were going to move to a DevOps model and give teams accountability of their own resources and the which agile they wanted to use and how they wanted to run it, et cetera. But that's the direction we were going to go in. So now to, to set that context, to kind of get to the question, the real unlearning for me was how to be a leader in that situation. And I had come from a number of environments where there was already a well-established culture and a way of working and how people communicated. All my experience before that being at Bloomberg, Bloomberg was very much an engineering culture where there was a lot of people who were very capable of building and wanted to build things and do the right thing for the customer by and large. And also where if you had a top-down edict of, hey, we're going to go in this direction and we're going to do it, largely people would move in that direction and do it. Mm. We already had the culture and the scaffolding and the reinforcing points behind it. So very naively, I come to Dow Jones. That works everywhere, right? Right, right. Very naively, I'm like, well, that's going to work here. It was so naive, I probably didn't even think about it. I don't think I even thought about it. Yeah. And I was just like, well, we're going to put together the strategy. We had a couple of people who were working on a our start small project over on the side. They were setting the groundwork for how I wanted everybody to behave and what, you know, the direction we were going in. And I mapped out a very, very rudimentary version of a strategy. We called it the three Ps, people, process, and platforms. I just hadn't heard of people, process, and technology yet. Yep. And I said, we're going in this direction. Everybody get on board and let's go. Well, it's a great share, first of all. Because <laughs> it's, Something we see a lot, right? Like the stuff that has made us successful in the past, why wouldn't we use those same behaviors to make us successful in the future? It's one of those classic patterns we talk about in Unlearn, right? And to your point, it's almost a reflex. Yeah. Because you know those behaviors work Yep. in the context. As you move context, Yep. do they still work? Yep. So it's really nice. To hear that, so thank you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was this worked for me here, so it must work for me there, I guess, here and there. Mm. You know, the reality was, I would say, as a leader, I failed spectacularly for the first six months in moving people to where I wanted them to go. And how did you know? Like, well, yeah. What were your signals? Yeah. There were signals along the way, some of which I probably didn't pick up on until I had the benefit of hindsight. But I had an advisor who was in helping me and helping shape my direct reports who were shifting. And I was, you know, changing the leadership team and everything else and bringing more people in who were going to be aligned to where we wanted to go. And this was a gentleman who was part of a leadership cohort and thing that I did called Coro New York several years before that. And he really struck me as somebody who could help me in this situation. And he had probably spent two or three months with me and my team at that point. And we were sitting down in a session and I was complaining. I was whining 
about how slow things were moving. And, you know, I wanted this team to do this more quickly. And I don't understand why this cohort of people is not behaving in this particular way. And he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said to me, you know, Stephen, there's no glory being the only one at the finish line. And I don't know if you've had this in your career, but it's, it was one of those times in my career where literally I felt like the blood emptied out of my veins. Yeah. And I just stopped. And all of those signals that I should have picked up on over the six months leading up to that all came into view. Yeah, they pour over you. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I've been doing this whole thing wrong. And I'm way out in front of the team and where we need them to be. Haven't done a good enough job of picking up on these signals and figuring out how I can motivate not just the people who are leaning into the change we're trying to make, but the whole organization. And it was a huge turning point for me, certainly in that role. And I would say without exaggeration for my career. And that's when I really started to be more empathetic to what people were saying, which maybe I wasn't able to hear beforehand and starting to pick up on some of those signals, maybe microaggressions that were happening in my organization that in isolation might not be super meaningful, but in aggregate made the progress of what we were trying to achieve super slow. And it's tough, right? Yeah. It was one of the, yeah, it was one of the most enlightening days of my career, frankly. And so then, so, okay, so what? What are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And there was a couple of things that we started to do. I felt that we had done a pretty good job of painting out where I wanted people to go. But I started to open it up a lot more to how lots of other people would influence and change, even if it was just in a slight way so that more people felt bought in. And rather than, you know, me every once in a while sending out a, you know, a memo or a blog post, or we were doing town halls probably quarterly. We moved to a monthly town hall where not just myself, who kind of set the stage, but we had a lot of other people on the team come up and start to articulate what they were doing, how it was aligned to the broader vision, why they thought it was important, what was motivating them to do it, and really showcase the wins of what was making them successful. Well, you know, so what I really like about this story, though, is, you know, you've got all the constituents here of good experimentation, right? Starting to recognize you're not driving the outcomes you want. Like we want to be faster. We want to be more people engaged in this delivery, want more people bought in. And, and seeing those signals and not achieving those outcomes is your aha moment, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And owning that, I think, is a huge step forward when you're trying to get these breakthroughs, like recognizing that your current behaviors are not driving the outcomes you want. And when you own that, then you can do something about it. Yeah. And it's interesting even to listen then the relearning and the small little experiments you're doing. Yeah. Like let's increase the tempo of information instead of going quarterly, let's go monthly. Yeah. Let's not have one voice. Let's have many voices. Yes. Like they're subtle behavioral changes, but they actually have quite a big impact. Yeah. There's many, right? Like in those town halls is another good example. There was a morale issue and there was, you know, camps of people. There was the camp who was leaning in and really bought into the vision and where we wanted to go and that was growing, which was good. And then we had, I'm going to steal a phrase from a close friend and another technology executive I know fairly well, Phil Weiser, who led a similar change at, at Hearst over the last couple of years. 
he referred to them as the spitball crew. And that that small group of people who are always going to be skeptical of everything you're trying to do and and throw spitballs you yeah, know, yeah, all the yeah. time. Yeah. And they're the kind of dissenting opinion. And those dissenting opinions can be really valuable. If you listen to them, they can also be counterproductive. Absolutely. If they're yeah. not, you know, backed up by alternative solutions and approaches and whatever else. But in those town halls, we set up anonymous ask me anythings beforehand where people could anonymously submit through a survey form proved was anonymous you could ask anything you wanted and of course the first couple of times we did that we got very almost aggressively sarcastic worded questions that were very cynical of some of the things we were trying to do and i read them out loud this is what people are asking and i read them out loud and answered the question to the best of my ability and or had other people answer that question to the best of their ability and when there was truth to the snarkiness yeah we're not doing a great job in this particular area and it's an opportunity for improvement and if anybody feels that they have a better idea or way myself or this person or whoever is all ears let's get in a room let's talk about it and let's figure out a better path forward and there's loads of great little nuance to those things like first of all giving people agency to share like create safety through the anonymousness uh, vulnerability in yourself by recognizing that there's you don't have all the right ideas. Like this is everyone's chance to contribute. And then for them to offer experiments are small steps that they have to try and help move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great. And you know, we had snarky questions for about three months, probably. And then we still had the spitball crew four or five, six months later. Well, they'll always be there, right? But the questions were, some were very direct, but I would say the tonality of how they came across certainly changed. And for me, that was a signal that, you know, what we were trying to do with the morale issue specifically was at least starting to work. And yeah, that was another thing that we did that was really, really useful. You know, another thing we did was kind of get rid of these centralized silos of IT functions. So in common IT organization, you'd have a sysadmin group, a DBA group, a network operations, security is siloed, so on and so forth. And all different incentives. Different incentives, throw a ticket over the wall, DBA changes this index, sysadmin patches this operating system, network operator changes this firewall rule, and they forget why they're even doing it. That's because the ticket told me to. Months go by. Yeah. We have all sorts of stories around change the firewall rule and the data center went off the grid and we didn't realize it for three hours later and all sorts of fun outage stories like that. And again, I realized just because I told people to work together and understand, get to the heart of what the business requirement was when you're patching an operating system, know why and is it because there's a new code package we're deploying and you know, it requires an upgraded system. And what was that code package for? And why does the customer care? And I, I could say that till I was blue in the face, but it didn't really change any behavior. So we got rid of those functions. And we just said everybody's co-located into teams that have a responsibility to a customer outcome that can be measured by number of subscribers or revenue or retention or something that I could stand in front of my chief exec and defend. And great. If you're a system administrator, you're going to start learning how to script and automate a lot of that stuff, particularly as we're moving it to the cloud. And the incentive is now aligned to 
a business outcome. And when I say you need to understand what the customer outcome is, you kind of had to or you weren't going to be successful. So this is super interesting for me, right? Because what we're talking about here is a whole organization sort of on learning. And you're designing a system to allow that behavior to emerge, right? You're breaking up. We were trying, yeah, for sure. That's what's interesting here, right? It's like, because you're putting the scaffolding in place to let those behaviors emerge, right? You're getting good at describing outcomes that instead of silos working towards, cross-functional teams are working towards, right? Like remove the silo, create the cross-functional team, give them an outcome that they own, that they're responsible for delivering. So if we have a problem, the team own it. That's right. Not an individual, not a function, the team. That's right. And I think one of the, you know, often one of these ideas that is spoken out a lot about in Amazon and AWS is these cross-functional two-pizza team ideas and how you start to create those organizational designs to help. That's a relearning in itself and an unlearning of silos to cross-functional yeah. teams and allowing these new behaviors to emerge because suddenly a security person understands what a tester is doing what a designer is doing, what a product manager is trying to do. And everybody's sort of unlearning what they thought was happening and getting these amazing breakthroughs. Uh, this was another, it was unlearning for the organization. It was another big surprise for me as a leader, just diving a little bit deeper on what you were saying. I, I said, all right, everybody's going to own their own roadmap and the customer outcome, and you're going to be working in these cross-functional teams. And as a result, you get to decide what features you work on in what order with our product teams and kind of putting everybody together. You build it, you run it. I was stealing those words as Werner Vogels, who many of you probably well know is the CTO at Amazon. I've heard him say this a number of times, both before and, and since working here. And again, very naively, I thought, well, everybody's going to love that trade-off. They're going to get to own their own roadmap. They're going to get to decide what technology they use when they are building solutions for their customers. And you know, they're going to love the fact that they get to understand what didn't work when it breaks at two o'clock in the morning and have to wake up and fix it. Well, they're going to love that. Well, you know, I, it was just what I knew because when I was an engineer at Bloomberg and rising through the ranks there, like that's just how they did things. I didn't know any better. It was yeah. just like, yeah, you need to know when something's breaking for your customers and when you find that out, you fix it so it doesn't happen again because you don't want to be woken up at two o'clock in the morning because engineers are lazy. It's the best incentive ever. And people were not a big fan of that move. Where, where we were, my context changed and well, wait a minute, what do you mean? I'm going to build this software and I'm not going to throw it over the wall and somebody else. And it was very difficult to explain to engineers who weren't used to having to do that, that they now had this responsibility. And of course, just like anything, you had a cohort of people who got it, a cohort of people who didn't. But what was just, I felt second nature to me was not to many others. And that was a really hard thing for me to learn how to lead through and also for, I think, the people who had to go through that change to unlearn and relearn also. So what were some of the small steps that you started to help people with? Or how did you make people feel successful as quickly as possible? Yeah. Because I think that's one of the big things about when you ask people to change. Yeah. You're thinking big, you're starting small, but you need to help them learn fast about the behaviors they're trying, feeling successful with new behaviors, seeing the, the results relative to the outcomes they're driving for. Yeah. There's at least two things I'd point to. The first was, you know, our department, IT, as it was called then, I changed it. 
to Dow Jones Technology. I wanted to free ourselves of the branding of what people, they almost said it with like a IT, you know, they almost said it with a, with a certain amount of emphasis that I didn't quite care for. But I could point to significantly senior stakeholders across the rest of the organization who would tell a story of how X number of months ago, they would call up IT support, somebody who is sufficiently distanced from the issue that they had, took the call, took a bunch of information, provided no troubleshooting help whatsoever. Maybe a ticket was entered. Maybe they got a follow-up three or four days later. Maybe it was helpful. Maybe it wasn't. And people would just give up. Forget it. I'll figure out. I'll restart my computer or I'll go to a different website, whatever the case may be. And I could point to enough people across the organization who were working on a product that we were developing using our new methods who felt that they had a fast closed feedback loop into the people who are directly making those changes and supporting those changes. And then seeing somebody who wasn't me, who was also a well-respected person in the business, probably who had been there for certainly a lot longer than I had been, mm -hmm. say that this was a change in the positive toward in the right direction, helped people. Then we did metrics around reliability on the things that we were doing. And it just turns the lights on and everything. And, and there it was like hard evidence that the number of significant SEV 2s or SEV 3s or outages that we had in particular lines of products that moved faster in this direction were less than in those who didn't. So it's really interesting for, to hear this because so many of the companies I'm working with, nobody shares the stories. Like nobody shares just simple little stories of success, how things are getting better. Like even today I was with a bank here in New York and somebody has come up with a great way that they can launch an end-to-end -end simplified version of a trading product that would have taken them months to do. And they started trading in six weeks. Wow. And all that they scaled back the complexity of the product. Instead of trying to go multi-market, they went one market, yep. one currency, and they started. I don't know. Is this the best product they've ever built? No. But they've evidence of new behaviors and something working. Yeah. And the next question I asked them is, are you telling anyone about this? Oh, no. No, no, we we don't do lunch and learns. No. Oh, we have a town hall maybe in like six months or maybe I'll talk about it there. Yeah. You know, I can go everywhere and tell you stories from companies of all. You go all, all over the world telling stories from Amazon. I can tell stories from where I've been. But no stories have an impact like a story from the company that you're in, the context that you're yeah, in. Yeah, totally. Because it debunks these myths that totally. it's not possible to do this totally. here. And you know, I'll just give you some more anecdotes. It stems beyond, far beyond my experience. I started to do that. I still, looking back, and now given some of the anecdotes I'm about to remark on, we did that wildly insufficiently. And if I had to do it all over again, I would have done it 100 times more than we actually did. What I'm saying, it did help, and it did help people unlearn behaviors, And but I wish I would have done it 10 times more. If I look at some of the things that Capital One has done over the years in their organization, you know, they're very well known to be leaning very heavily into public cloud and exiting their data centers and using their technology shift as an opportunity to change their culture. And there's a gentleman called Drew Fearment 
who set up their original Cloud Warriors office. I know you know him already, Barry, and yep. he viewed his role in their talent transformation as largely showcasing the right way to do things. And they didn't call it this, but almost having a cloud business or cloud marketing office that was finding these little gems of things that they learned and putting them in a centralized portal and holding these monthly lunch and learns or whatever they called them and, and really advocating for that. Verizon is another great example who I also know you're familiar with. And there's a gentleman there called Mahmoud Alasir who set up a, I think they called it the Verizon Cloud Business Office. I think you might know yeah, yeah, yeah. particularly what his name is. But they basically had evangelists. They were engineers and they were people who were doing the work, but a significant portion of their role was to evangelize the things that they were doing differently and why, and then co-locating with teams over a longer period of time to really reinforce those behaviors. And I look at what some of these significantly larger than I was at Dow Jones organizations and what they've done. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's amazing. And it definitely, you know, I don't know how to quantify this, but it certainly appears to separate how fast they're able to navigate this change than the ones who don't do that. Well, that's what's interesting, right? It's, and to your story as well, it's like this multifaceted approach. It's like the qualitative stories, but then the quantitative metrics like availability. When you turn the lights on, literally, and have good telemetry and have good insight, when you're reducing outages by 50, 60, 100%, you know, and then people are telling the stories about that result. What behaviors helped drive those results? Yeah. What should we do more of? What should we do less of? What would you do differently? I just think people probably underestimate the power of stories. Yeah. And paired with the inside of metrics to really quantify that. You know, I think that's where you get these huge yeah. breakthroughs. Yeah. They don't teach you that in computer science school, you know, like I learned how to engineer things. Output. Yeah. <laughs> and how to write good code and scalable systems. and But as I've learned the hard way, that is a, it obviously depends on your role, but that is a very small and increasingly, arguably insignificant part of the challenge when you're a really large company trying to stay relevant. So as we're looking ahead now, you're in a new role again. You're back sort of inventing the future again inside AWS. What are some of the things in your new role and you're trying to bring a new product to market, what are some of the things that you're recognizing, the learnings that you're feeding forward as you tackle that challenge? Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, now back building a new product and there's a ton of inventing involved in what we're doing and bucking the status quo in a certain space that, you know, we've been thinking deeply about for some time. But I am now back in an organization that has a very high performing, well-prescribed written down and strong culture and operating model. At Amazon, we have these 14 leadership principles and they're largely understood to be effectively the contract or the tenants by which people here work together. And it is much easier and better here to swim with that slipstream and embrace all the things that work and the common nomenclature across the company and it's just so much more efficient than having to kind of try and invent all that stuff over. But then the trick is, how do you optimize on the margins and what's unique for the particular business or thing that you're building and how do you stay ahead of that and be respectful of what's there, but 
also be able to iterate and improve when it isn't quite working for you for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's been as much of an aha moment for me as just like a constant, am I doing this right? Yeah, just a little voice, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So that's part of it. And then when I look across, you know, what's happening out in the, the industry, when I started meaningfully looking at public cloud adoption in 2011, 2012, many people thought I was crazy. Now I don't think anybody thinks that's crazy. Now the conversations that we have with customers is not about if or why. It's about how fast and in what order. So I continue to be really excited about the pace of innovation that's going to happen. And there's going to be winners and losers. There's going to be folks who aren't able to do it fast enough. And I don't know if it's in one year or three years or five years, but those who can't do it fast enough, I think it's going to have a meaningful impact on their bottom line and not the one they want. So how can people respond? Like, how can they recognize that there's a big challenge, but how can they start small and start learning fast? I mean, you said it. You have to start somewhere. You can't be afraid to start. One of the biggest challenges that I've seen, this I wrote about this in my book, is analysis paralysis and... Perfection. Striving for perfection, striving not for excellence. Trying to solve every problem that you might have when you're not going to have 95% of them to begin with. And it's a new paradigm. Cloud computing is a new paradigm. DevOps is a new compare. You know, there's so many new paradigms that a lot of these organizations are trying to introduce, trying to backstop everything that could go wrong. Now, look, I understand that many large companies are in regulated industries and there's a number of things that they have to take very seriously and make sure that they're doing the right thing by their customers and all that. But there are plenty of opportunities where either those sensitivities don't exist or don't exist in, in as influential of a way. And those are the places to start. And learning what works, learning what doesn't. An organization's culture is not something I've certainly learned that you can say is going to be a particular way. It's something that is a particular way and you write down and codify and reinforce. And, you know, it's the result of something, not because you said you wanted to be that way. Well, you know, one of the things we always say is you can't think your way to a new culture. You've got to act your way there. Yes, you have to act your way. Very wise. So it's been really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Barry. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what emerges from your latest endeavor here. I'm sure it's going to... Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen, but I think that's what the exciting part of it is. And I can see that's that in right. your face. You're that's keen right. to get it out and... That's right. See what happens. So thank you very much for sharing your uh, insight with us. You bet. Thanks, Barry. Cool, man.